0: Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am your co-host, Chris Papa. I'm, I'm alone right here. I'll just mean Julio. Say hi, Julio. Julio doesn't talk. Oh, there he goes. Uh, we're excited to launch the Impact Real Estate Podcast Summer Series, where we bring back some of our favorite interviews from the previous iteration of this podcast. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to be reintroducing you to some of the titans of our industry with the hope that their stories will continue to impact all of you. As always, any love, you can send the podcast via like, share, comment, or review across iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or the jacksonlucas.com website. It's always appreciated. For now, thanks for tuning in and have a great summer. A very special guest, Mr. Dudley Benoit. Dudley is the Executive Vice President at Alliant Capital and based in Los Angeles, California. How are you,
1: Dudley? I'm good, Chris. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me and making the time. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you. How is uh, Los Angeles today?
1: Good, man. Sunny, 70s, I believe. So, you know, living the dream out here in L.A.
0: L.A. is a, uh, a good town um i remember i think if i remember correctly you're from new jersey right
1: yes born in newark new jersey lived like the last 25 26 years in jersey city before moving over to la a couple almost two years ago
0: did you as a fellow new jersey native and uh california transplant did you have some sort of uh i remember thinking about la and thinking oh LA how could i ever live in LA and then when i actually went there i was like whoa i know i know why i can live
1: in LA <laughs> no it's funny um when i was in graduate school several of my good friends were all LA um, natives and i spent a f- in there for work i worked at JP Morgan and other places i spent a fair amount of time in LA and i oh, always gotcha. thought it was the last place on earth i ever wanted to live you know like i live anywhere else but LA but quite frankly this point in my life with kids and space and not a bad place to live in the pandemic. if You could, you know, be outside year round and stuff. So we've taken to it. The kids like it. The wife likes it. So we're we're, we're good. We're good with that. Nice. Yeah, I like LA a lot too. I'm I'm actually going to be down there this weekend.
0: All right, cool. My my best buddy lives down there. Um, well, cool. Could you uh, just tell the audience uh, what what is Alliant Capital?
1: So yeah, Lion Capital is a privately owned low-income housing tax credit syndicator. That's a fancy way of saying we're essentially a real estate private equity fund that focuses on development and financing of rental affordable housing. Um, For those that don't know, the low-income housing tax credit is the primary vehicle that is used um, to build multifamily rental affordable housing in the country, Um, and we we you know. We've been at it for a little over 23 years. Um, you know, we you know, have a, a nice practice, and I've been with the organization probably a little over um, two and a half years. And right now, you know, we um, we probably have done projects in almost every state in the union. I forget; I think maybe Maine is the um, one that we haven't done yet. But you know, we we obviously a big focus for us is in California, um, because that's where we've always been headquarters. But um, you know, we probably, we have over 8 billion in equity raise, about over 15 billion in assets under management since our inception. So, you know, we're good with this and we like the space and it's a great, you know, it's a place where you can do well and do, you know, do good at the same time because there's a shortage of affordable housing and it helps stabilize communities. Do
0: well and do good. I like that. 8 billion of equity raised. Is I mean, do, where does the equity come from?
1: Our investors are primarily um, financial banks and life companies, insurance companies. Um, there's something called the Community Reinvestment Act, where, for to make it simplified, it's an anti-redlining law that's been on the books for a long time for banks, and banks have to invest and lend in the communities that they serve, and the low-income housing tax credit is the primary way that banks um, fulfill that obligation is by investing in low-income housing tax credits. Um, and then secondly, insurance companies are a big investor in the product as well, because obviously life companies have a long um, you know, long tenure, or long maturity of their investments. They need to be able to invest their um, premiums and the like for a long time. And on a risk adjusted basis, the low income tax credit program is probably the best and safest investment out there. Um, if you look at over the 30 plus years of the program, the losses or foreclosures have probably been in a range of 40 BIPs or four fifty BIPs, something like that. I'm not quoting the exact number, but there's nothing comparable um, for a 15-year product. And ours is a 15-year investment. Only thing that's comparable is treasuries. So um, you, you can get the ins- a lot of the insurance companies have found it to be a nice place. Um, and most of the groups that are doing kind of their fixed income look um, at Litec as a product that they'd like to invest in.
0: So these... Life codes or, or whatever they invest with you they allocate capital to you guys and then a lion goes out and buys the tax credits.
1: No, so Where the, do tax the tax credits? No, come good from question. That they, that they allocate? So the the each state does its own allocation of credits. So it's a national program, but it's, every state does it their way. So there's a per capita given. So right now I believe it's like two dollars and eighty-one point eight point eight one two five cents per person. So whatever the population of your state you get allocated $2.81 $2. per person. I, th- ah, okay. I think the minimum today is for a state. Don't quote me on this. I think it's th- 3 million. I could be wrong. I can't remember the number, but for really small states like a Delaware or something like that, there's a, a floor, but for the biggest, everyone else is that 281 per head. And then you apply to a state for a 9% credit. And each state has priorities. One year they may have a priority for, you know, seniors. Another may want to have priority giving you lead lead certification. I'm just making that up, but there's a point system and then everyone applies and the, 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 the applications that score the best get awarded 9% credits. And there's also 4% credits that developers apply for that are as a right. So you use the bonding authority a state has, and you'll get a 4% credit that goes along with that. Obviously, the 9% credits provide you more credits than 4% by the name. obviously not um, by what's in the name, but that's kind of how the program works. So a developer goes out and applies for that, and then they win it, either a 9% or 4%, and then they go to a, a syndicator like an alliance and they say, hey, we have this deal, um, we're looking for 90 cents for every dollar credit and then we go out and try to find we'll bid on that and we'll find an investor either that wants that investment and we do our funds two way we have proprietary funds which are single investor funds or we have multi investor funds where we have you know seven or eight investors that may come in for a 150 million 200 million dollar fund that may have seven eight nine 10 properties in it
0: oh wow.
1: thanks for explaining that
0: and so you work on both the the nine and four percent, yes, credits mm-hmm. in both arenas. Yes, yep, mm-hmm. it's awesome. And then Align, I mean, I don't know Align that well. I mean, I, I know the name. I, I've never worked with with you guys, but are you? Uh, I mean, how many? How large are you? I mean, how many people are there? Yeah, like- so
1: we're I guess, we're primarily based here in Woodland Hills, California. We have right now, I believe, like a hundred and eight employees, something like that. I know we're hiring some more folks. Um, but mo- and most of our po- employees are here, but we have some folks for asset management s- scattered out in different parts of the country. Um, so, you know, we're not a huge organization, but, you know, we're not tiny either.
0: Gotcha. And then your role as an EVP, what does is, what is that encompass?
1: So I manage the front end of the business. So I manage the team, the investor relations team. So they go out, they're the team that's going out and getting the capital. And I also manage the um, originations team. That's the team that goes out and finds the actual transactions. So Drew Foster runs investor relations for me and Jen Erickson runs um, our origination. So her and her team go out there and when the the developer wins a project, he comes to her and her team and we bid on it to try to bring it in. And I also manage the marketing as well. And that's how you met um, Aaron and Amanda as well. Nice. And so
0: you have to know, I mean, it's your job to go out and know, we got to know the product, right? Mm -hmm. And then go out and kind of, know the different type of investors out there and who might be looking for
1: to invest in these
0: type of products Yeah, exactly
1: you want to know the, it's not just the investors because partially it's a relatively given what most people think about investment it's a relatively small universe because it's mainly banks and insurance companies every once in a while someone else i mean you yeah. what we're seeing now is some of the healthcare companies are coming in because it's been a clear acknowledgement that having stable safe affordable housing is a big contributing factor of being healthy as well. So we're seeing the CVSs and the Humanas and the Aetnas come in as well. But it's primarily banks and insurance companies. So the the universe is relatively small, but you just want to know the pressure points, what investors are looking for, what their hot buttons are. And that changes sometimes with the economy and what the risk profile may be. So that's a big thing. Just always want to be in front of them and knowing what they want and where they want it. Because the CRA, Community Reinvestment Act, is dependent on locations right so a bank that's headquartered in st louis probably has a lot of st louis cra needs so you want to make sure you can help them fill that need a bank in florida may need a lot in miami so you're also trying to stay on top of that and understand what they need um and on the developer side you know there's a lot of developers out there that are doing this some are new to this some of them been doing it forever and you just want to know who's out there who has a good um track record who has good financial strength who really understands the communities they're working with, and who understands all the ins and outs of developing real estate, right? You know, and especially today, where there's so many things that are going kind of sideways, whether it be lumber prices, sheet rock, and stuff. You, you definitely want to yeah. focus on folks that know the process, have good financial wherewithal, know how to bid out a project properly, things of that nature. So you're taking all that into account. So my team on both sides, um, the investor relations and um originations they're constantly out there and they have to kind of have their ear to the ground and understanding what's going on out there all the time gotcha and did you
0: start out in originations no i you kind of understood this well
1: i started out i have a relatively different path kind of came backward into this i started out um again i was always interested in urban areas urban development being from the newark area Went to Rutgers undergrad and assumed I was going to go to law school. So, you know, I avoided math like the plague. I was a poli sci major. I just stayed up, (laughs) party, stayed up late at night, wrote papers, and I was good for it. Uh, But I got towards the end of my college (laughs) career, um, got introduced to this field of public policy um, by one of my mentors Uh and um, then went to do a summer program at Cal Berkeley um, at the Cal Berkeley School of Public Policy. And it's the program at the time was a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship. And if you completed the summer fellowship well and they recommended you, you can get a fellowship to go to graduate school for public policy. So I went mm-hmm. to University of Michigan for public policy, did that. And my first job out of that was at a place called um, MDRC, which is a social research company. They did a lot of stuff on okay. labor and employment and all that stuff. And it um, wasn't my cup of tea. So I kind of went to the bank and got in that. The, you know, there's an entry level analyst in the community development shop which was then um, Chase Bank. So that's probably like eight or nine mergers ago, 10 mergers, because I can't- Chase Bank, what's that? Yeah, so that was a a long time ago. (laughs) And stayed at the bank for the most part for about 16 years and raised through, um, rose through various things, doing all kinds of stuff. And even did commercial real estate my last few years there on the multifamily side and got out of community development. But I landed up here because I banked Alliance Capital when I was at J.P. Morgan. And when I left J.P. Morgan, I went to Santander Bank and help them start restart their mm-hmm. community development practice. And I also invested with them there. So when there was an opportunity for Sean, who is the owner of Reliant Capital, Sean Horowitz, to bring someone in to help him manage the company, um, reached out to me. We talked about it, and I felt it was like a, a great opportunity. Um, and my wife agreed, which is the way we could have done it. Um, <laughs> it's a great opportunity, and we you know we picked up the kids and moved across the country, and it's been a great decision.
0: That's great. And so what's the type of, like if somebody was looking to be an originator or kind of more the investor relations side, like what sort of s- skill sets should they acquire in order to be successful in those career paths? Um,
1: facility with numbers, understanding accounting, and the biggest piece of it is sales, that having that sales culture and having that sales mindset, right? Especially on the originator side, because originators in most shops, and most places, you know, you most of your compensation is on killing what you eat, right? So you want to go out there and the more you do, the more you can make and you got to be able to establish relationships and you got to really have a sales culture and a client focus. And be quite frank, not everyone does. Not everyone is interested in having their comp tied to success like that. Um, so you have to have that kind of that that kind of attitude and that get go spirit to be on that. And the investor relations side, it's not necessarily this, that same level, but it's still a sales culture. You're in front of clients. You got to be out there. You got to get to know them, know what their needs are, understand their pressure points internally. You got to understand what, because every institution has, um, as an industry, we I think, generally speaking, look at things somewhat similarly, but every institution may have certain things that they like more than not, or they don't like the other. And so you got to understand that. So it's still a sales culture as well, but I'm in finance, obviously real estate, it's math. So, i facility with numbers, modeling, Excel, accounting, yeah. all that kind so of stuff. So, you tried to avoid math. I try to avoid it like the plague and then end up going. <laughs> and then when I was at the bank, they sent me to business school. So, I really, you know, I went to oh. Michigan for policy school, which kicked my butt because I was not, that was nothing but math. And then later on, going to business school. So, I got, I, as much as I try to avoid it, that's all I really deal with is numbers these days.
0: Yeah. Okay. I mean, did you think, yeah, I mean, I, as someone, I went to Rutgers as well, Are probably you? the best school in America. I, I, Are you? I mean, look at, look, at, look at us, <laughs> look at us. Um, and then, but I avoided the business school component. Uh, Cause I don't have to deal with that much math in my role, but I always wanted to learn that skill set. I mean, is that something you you definitely would advise someone who went maybe to undergrad in uh, a liberal arts major who wanted to get into this type of world, like at least, somehow get some financial skill set.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it. I don't know that you need to go back to graduate school per se. I mean, a lot of my mentors, a lot of people I dealt with in my in my career, they were maybe business undergrads or they worked someplace and they learned most of the stuff you can learn on a job anyway. I, no matter what degree you have, you're gonna go to some company or, whether big or small, they're gonna teach you the way that they do it, right? So I do encourage folks to have a facility with numbers and not to be uncomfortable with it. So if you weren't a business major, you may have to figure out something, some way to supplement that so you can understand accounting and finance and all that stuff. But I don't know that for everyone, it makes sense to go back to school unless you have larger goals, because Mm -hmm. there's obviously costs associated with that. So you're going to go back and take up a bunch of, um, take on a bunch of debt, Are you going to get a return. I hate to sound so like investment oriented about that, but I think- (laughs) The cost of graduate school and business school is significant. So if if you're going to go back and do that, you should, you know, I always tell folks, if you're going to go come out of business school and essentially do the same thing you're doing now and making the same amount of money you're making now, it's probably not that big, not that good an idea necessarily. If you're trying to look to make a significant career change, like you're an engineer and you want to go work on Wall Street. It's probably hard to make that transition. Going back to business school for a few years allows you to do that. So I think you just got to think strategically about whether that makes sense for you or not. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I did that. I did that. That
0: math in my head. I was like, I don't think. I don't think we're. we're <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, do you get the experience like the projects that you're investing in with these developers, like kind of from start to finish? Sometimes are you able to like, are you guys involved? Yeah, we. I and mean, you're kind of lending. You're, you're you're investing in it, but then are you involved with the process from to the, to the yeah, end? Yeah,
1: I mean we're we're kind of unique in the spaces because we have our own construction management team. So some, oh, some wow. entities okay. contract all that out but we really do so we close it um, we manage the whole construction process and we're looking at the reports and we're looking at the draws internally. a lot of a lot of other syndicators have a separate you know they do third parties and sometimes depending on the investor there may be a third party that we work with but we're really doing that we're going out to see them I mean obviously the pandemic we kind of had to call audible we've been using FaceTime a lot to do a lot of that stuff but thankfully we're going to start getting back yeah. on the road. And, seeing the projects ourselves, but that's one of the things we really like because we do have our own construction team that kind of sees the whole process through. And then from there we have our asset management team that's seeing the project throughout its life. And we have periodic reviews and making sure that we get out to see X number of projects every year.
0: That's gotta be pretty rewarding to, you know, see a, you know, see a property or development site prior and then having, you know, being able to show up there and, have it open a new a new a new property with all the, all the tenants in place and all that kind of stuff is that is that something is there are there any particular projects that you've kind of worked on that have kind of stood out for you
1: i think it's it is great the ground breakings and things of that nature really you know give you a lot of pride and um help you you know kind of because some days you're just on you know you're on conference calls all day you're just plowing through spreadsheets you're yeah. in yeah. meetings and you don't necessarily always see the forest for the tree, but it is the grand openings, the groundbreakings, or you have ribbon cuttings and elected officials come out and, you know, you really see that you're making an impact on these communities. So that stuff is is pretty great.
0: And how, I mean, how did you, I mean, you said you wanted to possibly, you said you might be able to go to law school uh, when you came out of undergrads. Did you have an interest
1: in housing? No, that's, that's the funny I mean, thing. Or did you that kind of? I just had an interest in yeah. urban development and urban um, areas. So once I had my very first job out of grad school, and I saw that wasn't a good fit. I, I was interested in how money flowed into or didn't flow into communities. So I was like, "Oh well, go work for a bank. At least you can go figure that out." But I had no real understanding uh-huh. of how any of this stuff worked. Um, I think part of, and you know, I'm a first generation kid. Haitian immigrants and all that stuff. You know, never did the whole corporate oh, wow. America okay. thing. None of that stuff. So for me, it was kind of like um, a lot of the things I, you know, I take for granted now, or probably my kids will take for granted, understanding how the world works and business works. I had really no knowledge of that. So just being a lawyer, you know, a lawyer. Everyone, you could, all, oh, you know, my mother could tell everyone that her son was a lawyer. That she can explain. All the other stuff, yeah, she <laughs> couldn't explain. So I was like, I'll just go be a lawyer. Exactly. No, I
0: was I was thinking about being a lawyer too. I actually worked at a law firm and I was studying. I took my LSATs, was ready to go to law school, and thankfully I worked at the law firm and realized what <laughs> this, <ain't>, this, <laughs> is not, this is not. Uh, not LA law. Yeah. This is not law. Not LA, law. LA. This is not LA law. Yeah. Okay, oh that's funny. <laughs> LA law. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but I did like the fact that like I worked in the in the real estate part of the, the law firm and like I could see the finished mm-hmm. product. We did like the first Whole Foods deal in New York, mm-hmm. and I was like, whoa, that's pretty cool. So I was like, hey, how do I get closer to that? Mm-hmm. I don't want to do this other stuff um and so then you kind of that's great man it's a great story um you're at a lion capital you're i mean you're running investor relations and originations i mean what 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 are you seeing i mean you're at the front lines of, of affordable housing and investments like what are you seeing out there right now is it is it is it as a recruiter i've been noticing affordable housing over the last two years probably has picked up substantially as far as job orders and activity is, is I mean, what, you, what kind of trends are you seeing out there?
1: Well, there's a more demand for the product, I think. Um, so this will be the second kind of recession, even though the pandemic recession is more of an artificial recession than the last one. But, you know, how do you judge a product, right? You did, or a, uh, a or an industry, you did, just judge it how it performs at the worst times. And you look at this pandemic and you look at 2008, 2007, and this product, the low income housing multifamily product has performed great right um so folks are more and more drawn to it um uh it's not as volatile even though folks think of oh my god you're servicing low-income housing a lot of people think it's slums and things like that until they get to know the product and understand this is world-class building um for communities and it performs well even for our portfolio even through this pandemic we were all concerned that you know things are going to go pretty sideways and throughout it we had probably like ninety four percent economic occupancy throughout the the cycle. We've already seen it getting back up now. To, I think our last report we were probably in the ninety seven percent economic occupancy for some of the stuff. So we see a lot, a lot of demand and a lot of folks that are probably more doing, you know market rate stuff little by little trying to dip their toe into this market it's a more complex market because of the regulatory piece of it and understanding how to get in mm-hmm. but i think those folks that want to spend the time and that they they figure out like this is a good place to be
0: so you're seeing a lot more market rate developers investors get into the affordable space lately are they're trying, trying
1: to so we see it more and more i wouldn't say a lot but we definitely see more coming over because they kind of realize hey this is a a good steady stream of income and it's less volatile than doing the market rate stuff.
0: Kind of hedge a little bit there. How, how is the new, um, I mean, Biden came into office, like how how do different political regimes like affect the affordable housing
1: world? Well, uh, the one thing you know, I'll say about to low-income housing tax credit, um, it's always been kind of a bipartisan product. Um, I think it started under, if I remember correctly, started under the Reagan administration and the industry has done a really good, Good thing, all the trade organizations like the forti tax Credit Coalition and the like have been very deliberate in making sure whenever there's legislation, there's ever adjustments to the credit or just making sure that we're talking to both sides of the house and getting, you know, both sides to sponsor legislation. And I think um, even the most skeptical of folks, once they see a project open up in their community, it's real, and they see the positive impact in their community. So it's not just something happening in New York or LA, it's happening here in Wyoming, it's happening here in Nebraska, in my community, that you're able to get people to sign on. So I think, generally speaking, it's done well, regardless of administration, regardless of the party of the administration. Clearly, um, it has a cost, right? So depending on how folks feel about how fiscally we want to be, if we have to pay pay you know things paid for up front and all that stuff, that will have an effect on it. But generally speaking, um, there's a few things that is the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. And there's a lot of things that the industry is looking to do to make sure that we can build more affordable housing. Um, and I think we're gonna be relatively successful in that as well, because the product has been so successful over time and it's had great bipartisan support. So we don't know how and when these things will happen. But I think because the way the industry has always been positioned itself, working with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, um, we'll be well positioned to um, get some things in whatever the next bills are going to be that address either the budget or things of that nature.
0: how do you see it? Yeah. Where do you see Alliant going over the next couple of years and just the industry in general going? Any, any, any predictions?
1: I don't have any grand predictions. I think the industry is going (laughs) to grow a little bit because especially if we can get some of these improvements um, to the credit in some, you know, increasing the 9% credit, um, getting the bond, you know, um, being able to lower the bond requirement of, from 50% to 25% is going to give us the opportunity to do more. Um, so that's all the, you know, because the, the need is almost, it can't be met. So I think that's where we we'll end up seeing um, because uh, the, the demand continues to rise. Um, and I think we're we'll continuing yeah. to be, um, you know, more, try to get more sophisticated, more efficient. And how we go about working in these communities and working on these projects. Um, so I think you know, I think that's the biggest issue. And obviously, um, hopefully, in the Biden administration, the one thing I will say is they've probably been more supportive in increasing funding to HUD and increasing funding for a lot of the other programs that surround the tax credit program that provide subsidies. So obviously, as an industry, we're very supportive of that. And the more that does, the more you know, easier it is to make these projects work. Nice. Thank you.
0: Um, well, it sounds like you got a big job there. and very, uh, have a lot of responsibility, a lot of a lot rise in your well, shoulders. I, I'm, I'm fortunate um,
1: to work with great people and they let me lead them because they're doing all the hard work. I'm just kind of trying to direct the ships in the right direction.
0: Well, are you ready for an even harder assignment? Uh-uh. How about the, the hot
1: seat? Hit me. Oh!
0: is sponsored by kk reset kk reset is an hr management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture structure and path they outsource it to kk reset kk reset comes in maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an H- hr perspective for your for your firm so it's a great uh resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house hr function um so please check them out at kk k-k-r-e-s-e-t.com i love that music uh well these are the questions i ask all my guests um Any books you recommend, whether it's regarding affordable housing or business or life or anything that you want?
1: There are two books I'm reading right now, um, and I haven't finished either, but they interest me for a lot of reasons. Um, One of them is a book called Lights Out. Um, It's it's about the collapse of General Electric GE. Um, I I find it interesting book because... um, it really talks about kind of groupthink. Uh-huh. Um, so, like you know, I was in business school, and even when I was in my career in JP Morgan, GE Capital, Jack Welch, and all those folks, always kind of held, held up as a gold standard. The yeah, yeah, yeah. program was a gold standard, and they did everything right. When it turns out, they were kind of cooking the books this, the entire time.
0: <laughs> it's easy to um, do so. Yeah, look good. Yeah,
1: so. But it so that's that's interesting. And Jeff Immelt came through and tried to figure out how to fix that. And he kind of couldn't do that. So that part of the book is interesting as well. But I think it's also interesting in the danger of groupthink, right? The danger of just following along and accepting a narrative as is without um, really um, make doing the work to figure out what's going on. And I think, obviously, after GE and Enron and MCI, a lot of that stuff that folks are definitely Probably more, you know, attuned to looking at that, but not really. When you look at WeWork, WeWork from day one made really no sense, right? They yeah, were leasing, yeah. leasing space for a dollar and subletting letting it for ninety cents, right? I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. oversimplifying, <laughs> but that was their their business model, Kinda. and the world yeah, yeah. world loved them. And everyone everyone JP Morgan, all everyone loved them, loved them. I know it's and, crazy. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's yeah. Anyways, sorry so that's an interesting book that I'm, I'm in the middle of and then the other one is a book called cast by Isabella Wilkerson which is about um, she has an interesting theory about obviously we're in this current state of social justice and things of that nature but she's looking um, at um, race not as race but looking at caste systems and looking at oh yeah yeah looking at India looking at kind of the Nazi Germany and how that happened with the way they looked at caste and extermination of millions of Jews, and then also in race in America. So kind of not looking at it mirror. What's that, that one called? Caste? Caste, C-A-S-T-E, looking at caste. Isabella Wilkerson, um, I think she got the prolitzer for that one. Um, and it's an interesting take on really looking at, um, and for me, that's an interesting one. So when, even when I taught my class, I taught a couple of times at University of Michigan on public policy on Economic development, community development. One of my first readings I always gave folks were the um, the case for reparations by Ta Nehisi Coates, right? Not because I was trying to convince folks about reparations for bl- African Americans or black folks, but it was just really trying to f- teach folks that <laughs> when we get, we've gotten to this place in America by very deliberate decisions. Like it wasn't just oh my God, how do we get here? Mm. There were very, very serious and significant policy decisions that were made over time that ended up um, where we are today. And I think Cast in a lot of ways talks about that, and it helps you look at what's um, the decisions that folks are made over time in this country that kind of reflect on how we look at folks in the upper cat, upper class, lower class, and things of that nature. So those are two interesting reads. It's fascinating. I'm going to order that one on Amazon as soon as we get off this. Um,
0: you listen to any podcasts?
1: I listen probably to too many sports podcasts, but the main one yeah. I probably listen to. <laughs> Um I from time to time I mean I listen to Boba Monty Jones's podcast like almost religiously. Um Yeah. Yeah. And then the other one I I like to listen to, um I'm trying to pull it up. I Gregory Porter has a the musician singer, he has a a podcast that I listen to. And then Quest Love Supreme, I listen to all the time. Oh nice. What's, so, what's your um what's your sport? Um you, what know, sports do you like probably basketball i mean i follow all the major sports but basketball is probably my main sport i mean i was a runner a mediocre runner back in my day track and field is probably my first love but no one, you know that's something we pay attention to in this country every four years i mean like to I mean, follow I mean, yeah
0: yeah yeah. we don't follow it you're a Knicks
1: fan that's no i oddly enough i am a child of the 70s people are laughing at me i've always been a magic johnson fan so i've been a lakers fan my whole life so actually i'm back where I need to be. So that makes sense. So that, that worked out by moving to LA. Nice.
0: Yeah. That's a good move. <laughs> uh I grew up a Knicks fan, so not, not
1: so it's a good. year this hey, year. this It's not, a resurgence. Eh? They, Knicks, Knicks are doing it. They are doing it's it.
0: A, it's a, I wish I, I, wish I could uh, have a Nets allegiance, but we would just go to Nets games because we couldn't get into Knicks games. It's exactly. No, exactly. No, basically understand. like every I'm other fan game. Game. that went there. Yeah. 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 Brendan Byrne Arena.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: Uh, <laughs> um, Here's an interesting question. What impact does your real estate have or the real estate you, you you work with have?
1: Oh, we think it has a, it's it's interesting. Yes. I think we have, like, it has a, a foundational impact on these communities. I think it's really helped transform communities. It's the foundation kind of helping re- communities resurge and or stabilize. I like to think back when I first started out um, at the bank at Chase. I started in Chase as an analyst in 1997, mm-hmm. I think. Um And this was a time in New York when New York still had a lot of, you know, you look at the Bronx and Harlem and all these places now that are just ridiculously priced and hard to get, but they were, the city was, you know, trying to redevelop one and literally giving nonprofits buildings for a dollar as part of, um, you know, I think it was the NEP Neighborhood Entrepreneurs Program. It was a whole bunch of programs that were really incentivizing folks to build and rebuild these dilapidated properties. A lot of times empty lots and that is what Harlem, you know, that led to Harlem being the Harlem it is today. Um, versus every, you know, a bodega on every corner. Now you have artisanal mayonnaise shops thing on every <laughs> corner now. You know, but that was the that was the birth of converting all that stuff. So I think the affordable housing we see is foundational to our communities and uh, helping stabilize and grow them. And we need more of it so that the folks that were there when it was all bodegas can stay there and enjoy it. You know, so that's, that's always the rub once it starts becoming better, you know, yeah. better, better um, amenities and things of that nature. Now, unfortunately, not everyone that was there for the bad times or the rougher t- or the tough times get to stay. So, you know, that's why we need more of this stuff um, and better zoning laws and less NIMBY so folks could grow and prosper as these communities grow and prosper as well.
0: We had somebody on the podcast who was on the uh, 125th street development corp um i think that's it right and he was talking about yeah the, uh, the change that that made there that was pretty cool um all right now what uh what advice would you give to your 20 year old self
1: uh step out more take more chances in a lot of ways i did because i was a young kid you know i was just running around but even take more chances i should took more chances and bet on myself even more
0: yeah i think uh that seems to be a theme in a lot of people, including myself, is like we kind of live in fear. We don't really live, act out of fear instead of faith, you know, type of thing. And uh, yeah.
1: and I think yeah. um, younger folks these days, it's a different environment. Like when I, I'm still old enough that I was still in an environment where people still worked for their company for 30 years and stuff like yeah. that. Now that's no one does that anymore. So it's less of that pressure. I think that, you know, that younger folks have now than they did when we were growing up. Um, so I think now, I think, and I like it, I think kids, I mean, you're an employer, you would hope they have a little more allegiance to you because you don't want to train someone to see them leave a year later. But for, if you're starting your career and and branching out, you know, you should really be making sure you learn. If you can't learn, if you're someplace you're not learning and growing, keep it moving. I know it's hard for employers to hear and it's hard for me because when it happens with us, we're like, oh, we just trained that, that woman and that man and we're losing them. But um, you got to look at your career as a stepping stones to the ultimate goal. So you got to try to learn and build your skills as much as you can. Gotcha. Yeah, no, good answer.
0: And now I am a recruiter. And so, I mean, a lot of people listen to this, I'm sure like interested in different types of careers in the world and in, in affordable housing. Uh, what do you look for? I mean, I'm not going to hold you to this, but like what do you look for as far as like when you're hiring people or, or working with partners? Is there any cert- certain skill sets and or just qualities in general?
1: Honestly, I, I'm probably, these days, I look more for the soft skills than the hard skills. Could, generally speaking, um, you can see the resume, you can see where they went to school, kind of their job experience. You could, generally speaking, tell whether they'll be able to do the job. And again, you're going to train them the way that your company does it, right? Everyone, we all do the same thing, but we have our own way of doing it. So then you're trying to, for me, I'm trying to figure out how do these folks interact with them? Can they lead? Can they take direction? So, you know, one thing to do, I think that I remember one of the guys I used to work with at JP Morgan, we did a lot. When we had candidates we really liked, we went to lunch with them, honestly, just to yeah. see how they interacted. Um, cause that tells you a lot. You know, it tells you a lot about the person and how they're gonna behave in the team setting and all that stuff. So for me, I'm trying to get signals on the soft skills cause the hard skills, the all that stuff, you know, most of the people you're gonna see at this point are smart and they can figure that out. But how are they gonna work? How do they take direction? How do they interact with the team? That's really the important piece. Great answer. Uh well Dudley Benoit,
0: Executive Vice President at Alliance Capital, thank you for your time. That was awesome.
1: Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. Thanks so much.